The summer doldrums are here, and fall is just around the corner. But some things don't seem to change. Portland City Hall is filled with uncertainty, and the mega project to expand I-5 through the Rose Quarter is once again filled with question marks. I'm Andrew Thien, and this is Beat Check with the Oregonian. Before we start, a quick thank you to our sponsor, Pacific Source, for supporting the show. Up next, we'll tackle both of those ongoing stories. On the first half of the show, City Hall reporter Shane Dixon-Cavanaugh breaks down the latest in Portland politics. On the second half of the show, transportation reporter Jayathi Ramakrishnan talks about the latest on the $1 billion-plus Rose Quarter Freeway projects. First, here's Shane. Shane Dixon-Cavanaugh, thanks for coming on the show. Andrew, it's been too long. It has. And time time marches onward. <laughs> Ever <laughs> onward. <laughs> but no, seriously, thanks for having me back on. Shane, I don't know how to really start here. Um, you obviously cover City Hall, and I don't know how else to put it. <laughs> what is going on over there? I mean, we're obviously in the midst of a pandemic, and, you know, uh, homicides are up, and um, traffic fatalities are up, and everything feels just hard. But watching City Hall from the outside, I, I just wonder what is going on over there? Well, it's been kind of a peculiar summer, starting with just the fact that the Portland City Council, and as you mentioned, we're sort of in the midst of converging crises that have been going on for quite some time. You mentioned gun violence and traffic fatalities. I mean, we're still dealing with uh, the sort of homelessness crisis throughout the city and the region. Uh, you name it, uh, trash and sort of livability issues are still kind of front and center on many Portlanders' minds. And the city council has been uh, off, essentially, for the last five weeks or so. They had not had any meetings uh, until this last Wednesday. Nothing to address, I guess. Well, there's Plenty to address, but uh, yeah, they were just not uh, they were just not meeting and didn't have an agenda for 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 many weeks throughout this summer. But they're uh, convening again and getting back to business. And you know, there's just been uh, there's 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 plenty to sort of talk about regarding that. I guess. Yeah, I guess um, to to go back to the the infrequent meetings, one of the meetings and topics that was scheduled recently that you reported on had nothing to do with. Um, you know, nothing practically speaking to do with city governance. And can you talk about that whole um, situation with Texas and kind of where things stand on a potential boycott? Yeah. So, I mean, this happened, uh, there, there was an announcement made by uh, the, the city of Portland and Mayor Ted Wheeler. This happened late Friday afternoon, right before the beginning of the Labor Day holiday weekend, where the the mayor basically said that the city of Portland was going to uh, get an emergency resolution before the council when it met on Wednesday to impose a uh, tra- travel restrictions for city employees uh, for them not to go to the state of Texas mm-hmm. and also for the city of Portland to stop doing business or procuring goods and services from companies that are based in the Lone Star State. And uh, so that was supposed to be taken up as sort of an emergency resolution on Wednesday. And then right before on Tuesday, late Tuesday afternoon, uh, the council made or rather the mayor made the, an announcement that they needed more time to actually 
flesh out some of the finer details around this. Are city employees traveling to Texas now? Is that a thing that's been happening during the pandemic? I mean, is this or was this from, you know, from your vantage point, just kind of a a political act showing, you know, we this is something we value, um, you know, women's rights to abortion, which are effectively been nullified by this uh, Texas action. Um, Or was that more of the the goal from your from what you've heard or yeah. yeah. So in answer to that question, I, I wanted to find out how often had city employees been traveling to Texas in the last couple of years. I mean, basically, uh, travel by uh, employee Portland employees was barred essentially from March of 2020 until June of 2021. But what I found out was that there had been since 2019, uh, at least 19 separate uh, city of Portland business related trips to Texas. So okay. yes, uh, you know, uh, the city's employees do travel there for conferences and other, uh, city business. And then on top of that, uh, like how much does the city of Portland actually buy, uh, or, uh, you know, how much money does it spend with, on doing business with Texas companies? And I was told that in the last five years, sort of contracts, uh, for goods and services from those companies added up to about $35 million or $7 million a year. So it's not, um, you know, uh, completely sort of symbolic. Right, there, right. There, there was some punitive, uh, you, know, fu- you know, financial measures that the city could take against Texas or Texas-based companies. But, you know, one of the things, and I think th- the reason why this all sort of got gummed up at the last minute is A, uh, it sounded like there was some discussion about whether or not having a boycott was the most sort of effective thing to do. Mm-hmm. And it sounds as though a lot of sort of the abortion rights or, you know, pr- uh, pro-choice advocates in the state uh, it, were not really consulted on the city's plan before it was announced. And they have some different thoughts on the best way in which the city of Portland might be able to help women in Texas who may be making the consideration to get an abortion. Okay. And we should note it's not it's not unprecedented for the city to take an action like this. Um, you know, previous city councils have enacted boycotts or travel bans on um uh, you know, states uh, or municipalities that that were pursuing so-called bathroom bills that uh, discriminated against uh, trans people. So, I, I mean, this is not unprecedented. Yeah, it was not unprecedented. But uh, I mean, uh, to the best of my knowledge, no other city or state has announced that they were seeking to do a boycott or similar actions against Texas. So Portland sort of stood out and was alone in this regard. And it did immediately get uh, a lot of attention, both nationally and internationally. It also attracted the ire of the lieutenant governor of Texas, who responded to this proposed boycott by calling the city of Portland a dumpster fire and calling its leaders depraved. Mm. So, you know, suddenly we've got... uh, a war of words with uh, the second most powerful polit- elected politician uh, in the state of Texas, but uh, that guy also has a he's a flamethrower. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he has a history of you know making uh, uh, fairly incendiary or inflammatory remarks. So maybe that wasn't completely surprising. 
All right. And we should note that the attorney general of the United States, you know, uh, had some pretty strong words for Texas calling this this uh, uh, action uh, unconstitutional. So obviously there's a whole other separate thing going on as yeah, well. Yeah, but but yeah, I mean, I think the I, I, I think the other sort of issue or point to note here with all of this. Mm-hmm. And I mean, this was uh, highlighted by the Oregonians editorial board. And just for listeners to, to be very clear, there is a sort of wall and separation between editorial and news. So we don't, I, I had no idea that this editorial was coming out, but you know, they, uh, our, our editorial board uh, sort of ha- had a column in Wednesday's paper that was taking the city council to task for Calling an emer- you know, calling it for an emergency resolution on Texas's uh, new abortion law when there are all of these other issues confronting the city and the city council hadn't met for weeks and sort of the first order of business mm-hmm. that they were going to get to uh, after returning from a multi-week hiatus was to do with something that had nothing to do with uh, the the sort of current set of issues confronting the city of Portland. And, you know, it wasn't just the Oregonian editorial board. Mingus Maps uh, uh, put out a statement that Willamette Week reported on where he sort of made a similar observation that yeah. he, he sounded kind of frustrated that uh, he and his council colleagues were uh, spending a lot of time focusing on this particular issue when there's, you know, many other things that are uh, front and center on a lot of Portlanders' minds. Yeah, let's talk about one of those other issues. Um, we mentioned the mayor. Obviously, he oversees the police bureau, and he's been quite forceful in defending the re- reaction from that bureau about how they handled um, another appearance by the Proud Boys in, in Portland. Um, and this was out in Northeast Portland. Basically, the police kind of stood down, but were close by and ready to act. But then he, he kind of surprised me and i gather he surprised a lot of people by changing his tune um at the most recent council meeting right um what gives yeah just again to 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 remind listeners there was another uh proud boys rally in portland last month on august 22nd uh that devolved into a roving street battle between them and a number of uh uh, counter protesters who uh, drove out to confront the Proud Boys who were having an event in an abandoned parking lot in um, Northeast Portland in the Park Rose neighborhood. But anyway, the, the, the city, the mayor, the police chief uh, leading up to this event all made it clear that the police were not going to intervene if these two rival groups decided to brawl once again mm-hmm. uh, in, in the city. And so that occurred. It was pretty ugly. Uh, The day ended with a gun battle in downtown Portland, where luckily nobody was injured. And uh, 24 hours later, or close to 24 hours later, the mayor responded to the day's events by essentially saying that the strategy that he and the police bureau chose to not really intervene in this skirmish between uh, rival groups was uh, an effective one, that it worked. And that uh, drew a lot of condemnation from a wide range of people. Yeah. Once again, put Portland in the national spotlight for reasons it would probably choose not to be noticed for. 
Does that even make sense? <laughs> yes, it does. I mean, and the parents of Park Rose uh, high school students might have uh, had something to say and the businesses yeah. along 122nd, right? But yeah, but anyway, I'm, I'm getting a little long winded here. But so yeah, the, the, the mayor came out and said the strategy worked. And then this Wednesday at, at the Portland City Council, this is three weeks later, or almost three weeks later, people aren't even talking about this now. And one of the first things that the, the, the mayor says is that on second thought, this strategy uh, that he was crowing about 17 days ago, uh, he completely reversed course and said, okay, maybe this was a bad idea. Uh, but once again, it just, it sounds like it surprised a lot of people, including members of his own staff who were not aware that he was going to be uh, making this public mea culpa at the city council meeting Wednesday. Speaking of the mayor's staff, um, there are many new staffers, I guess. I mean, how how many staffers has has the mayor lost? Because uh, the the communications director who helped craft that first statement is no longer there, right? And that was not even a month ago. Let's just say that the uh, you know every mayoral administration in the city of Portland has a lot of turnover. It's a uh, very sort of high intensity, high pressure job, and people sort of burn out, or they go, they spend a year or two working in city hall, and they go on to do other things. But mm-hmm. uh, e- you know, even within that context, uh, Ted Wheeler's administration has seen uh, an extremely high level of staff turnover. It's been occurring uh, throughout his first. Ter- it occurred throughout his first term, and has rolled into the second term as well. But uh, to to your point, Andrew, uh, and this was sort of newsworthy, the mayor lost his communications director uh, or one of the person who had served as communications director since last fall, Jim Middaw, left in May uh, for a different job. Mm -hmm. So the mayor has not had a communications director since May. It took them three months to find somebody who was willing to step into that very high-profile public role. And when they did, uh, it happened to be a uh, reality television producer from Los Angeles uh, who had limited experience in politics and government communications. This person uh, started their new job as the communications director for Mayor Ted Wheeler on Mm -hmm. August 23rd, the day after this uh, brawl and melee in Northeast Portland. And as we reported, uh, the communications director, Lennox Weasley, uh, left her job after working five days. It's just, yeah, you know, in in our industry, Shane, and I know, you know, having covered the city hall also, as some other folks in our newsroom have that it's a, like you said, it's a hard, it's a tough job. It's a thankless, difficult job in a lot of ways, but people have had success. There's a sense, I think from, there's always a sense that people in the media are just throwing stones and whatnot. But I mean, it doesn't look great from the outside. I mean, what when you're talking to people on the inside, do you get a sense of what the mood is is like? Or are people feeling the same way of like, this feels like everything is kind of disjointed at the moment? Well, certainly a little bit. And I, again, part of it is people have been... Largely gone, or have uh, you know been been out for a, a, hu- a large chunk of the summer. So things are just sort of getting back into the normal swing of things at at City Hall. But I, I guess I would just say, as a general observation, 
the uh, the role of a communications director or a chief spokesperson for you know the mayor or a chief executive of, uh, of any sort of institution is like a really important role and it's not just the person who gives quotes to the press they do a lot of work internally they work with other offices they manage staff they make sure that the uh, you know that the mayor's office has a uh, you know cohesive coherent sort of message that they want to give to the public and so I would argue that not having a uh, not having somebody in that role for many months now, going back to May, uh, it, it's not just it, it's it's just not good for the function of city business in general, and you know it's certainly not good for the public either uh, because obviously there's a lot of stuff going on in Portland on a day to day basis. People, the public our readers and listeners, they want to hear from their elected officials. They want to hear from their elected leaders. They want to hear from Mayor Ted Wheeler. And I can tell you that like without a, without a dedicated communications director, it is sometimes very hard to get information from that office that we can use and report to our readers. Having said that, I will also say that just as a general observation, mm -hmm. um, it's uh, e that it's sometimes very hard to get uh, the other members of the city council, um, with maybe a couple of exceptions, to routinely speak on the record uh, on on matters uh, of importance to the city. Um, you know, I put in interview requests or ask for comment or ask you know if certain offices are going to comment on things. And uh, even with a communications director, communications staff, uh, it can take them a little while to get back to you. Or sometimes uh, other members of the city council will have comments to say you know, several days, uh, after, yeah. you know, after an event or something like that. So no, that's an excellent point. And, and given our, you know, unique form of government, these are all, uh, citywide elected officials. Um, uh, they, they should, <laughs> they should have comments on matters of, uh, of import to the whole city. It's just been a real, you know, chaotic time at Portland city hall and in other sort of governments, at the local and state level as well, just for the last 18 months. And uh, it's, I mean, just the other thing that I will mention for whatever it's worth, mm -hmm. if, if people, you know, if listeners, you know, care, I, I just want to make it clear that people who work for the city of Portland and the staff for the mayor and the other city commissioners, I mean, they're, they are all uh, very hard, tireless workers. They're dedicated public servants. And it's just that, you know, this, this, this town is dealing with a lot right now. Well, it certainly is. And thank you so much for making sense of it and for taking time to talk about it. I don't know if I'm making much sense of it, but I'm trying. <laughs> You're articulating what's going on to the best you can. So appreciate <laughs> All right. it. All right, Andrew. Thanks so much. Let's take a quick break, then you'll hear my chat with Jayathi Ramakrishnan. Jayathi covers transportation issues for the Oregonian and Oregon Live. In this chat, we discussed freeway covers, and just a quick primer, that refers to an area where the freeway is covered or capped. The idea is those substantial public works projects can offer more usable space above the freeway for things like green spaces, community activities, or substantial buildings, which advocates had pushed for in Portland for years. Jayathi Ramakrishnan, thanks so much for coming on the show. Happy to be here. 
So, Jayathi, a lot of people have been maybe slightly paying attention to this massive Rose Quarter Freeway project that's been kind of moving along for years now. And we're at another flashpoint in this whole saga, and that happened um, last week. What exactly is going on? And can you describe what happened at the Oregon Transportation Commission? Yeah, definitely. So for a little background, for those who may have not been following, uh, ODOT has been planning for quite a while to expand I-5 near the Rose Quarter. Uh, That area has junctions to both I-84 and I-405, and it creates Mm -hmm. a lot of congestion, one of the worst uh, traffic congestion spots in the state. And uh, so they've been planning for a while to expand the freeway at that location. However, there have been, you know, concerns from a lot of community groups and, you know, local agencies that, you know, that area when I-5 was built many decades ago, uh, bisected the lower Albina neighborhood, which was a historically black neighborhood in northeast Portland. And so there have been efforts by many groups to try and get, um, you know, reconnect that neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And the the best option that emerged was a freeway cover. And so, you know, after a long time of, you know, contention between ODOT and these other groups, which includes the Albina Vision Trust, the city, the county, Metro, um, that, you know, there was some sort of a compromise that was expected to be reached with this uh, proposal dubbed Hybrid 3, which was Mm -hmm. a freeway cover that took or was supposed to take the considerations of all these groups um, and apply them while still allowing ODOT to widen the freeway. The Oregon Transportation Commission meeting, uh, the commissioners were expected to approve that hybrid three compromise, which would allow them to, which would allow ODOT to then move forward with um, kind of further looking into the plan, assessing mm-hmm. costs and and moving towards their target groundbreaking date or construction start date of 2023. But uh, there was sort of a curveball which was that uh, when the commission approved that uh, proposal from ODOT, they changed some of the language to specifically direct ODOT to seek funding from several local agencies. And they specifically named the city of Portland, Multnomah County, Metro, and TriMet, which was really surprising. You know, this has largely been expected to be funded by state and federal dollars. So uh, needless to say, it was a bit of a shock to some of those groups involved to hear their names, um, you know, brought up. Yeah. And so, yeah, it's it's been kind of a long, as you know, a long, complicated process, and it didn't really get any less complicated yesterday. <laughs> kind of par for the course. Yeah, uh, yeah I guess uh, background for people, you know, the legislature back in 2017 approved this massive transportation package. And as part of that, some of the, the big line items were projects in the metro area and this rose quarter freeway project was one of them um but really from that point on it kind of became more and more um polarizing from the aspect that you mentioned where um a heightened awareness of the um the community that was really ripped apart there and what can we do at this flashpoint to try to make things right but then there's also like a a um climate piece of this too right and and that's a piece that regardless of this compromise and where things stand there's there's a pretty vocal 
contingent in in the metro area that says this shouldn't be happening regardless, right? Definitely. So the, you know, there are quite a few environmental advocacy groups that have spoken out against this really consistently. Um, Two of the groups that showed up yesterday uh, to voice their dissent were uh, No More Freeways and then Sunrise Movement PDX, which is a group of a lot of youth, uh, actually Mm -hmm. the two or two of the three Sunrise Movement people that spoke yesterday were 15-year-olds, I believe, from Grant High School. And, uh, you know, those those teens have showed up at ODOT headquarters every other week for a long time now, like... Um, months, know, I yeah, think. Months. Yeah, months. And they, along with No More Freeways, have been calling for ODOT and for the commission to realize that, you know, during a time of climate crisis, widening the freeway may not be the answer. And... Um, you know, they've specifically cited the climate disasters that we've had here in Oregon in the past few months, such as the heat wave in June, um, you know, the wildfires mm-hmm. last year. So, um, yeah, that piece is definitely at play, too. And I didn't hear that get addressed as much yesterday. There are, you know, provisions in, in ODOT's plan that address some climate issues, but I there was not much to address yeah. those specific concerns. So the the Oregon Transportation Commission is this volunteer body, right? That's like the state's top decision makers. And they're appointed by Governor Brown. Mm-hmm. Um, and Governor Brown was the one who kind of brokered this <laughs> compromise yeah. that was going to hopefully um, appease both the state um, and its general contractor that was going to build this, you know, upwards of a billion dollar project as right. well as Albina Vision Trust that you just mentioned and other community groups that have been pushing for um, if you're going to invest all this money um, make it so we can actually have a community and bring businesses and people back so now what does this mean now that you know this body appointed by the governor hasn't really made it clear that the, that they're Agreeing with the governor, it seems. Yeah, and I, I guess we'll have to see. I don't know the answer to that question. You know, they've, <laughs> yeah. they've directed ODOT to to come back. Uh, I believe they're planning to reconvene in December. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they removed some language from that proposal, which directed them to have, you know, these specific funding sources locked in by I think July of 2023, but they had, they also directed ODOT to go and specifically seek out funding from these city and, you know, local government sources. So I don't know how that's going to go. And you, you may have being, having covered this beat way longer than I have, you may have a <laughs> yeah. better guess. Um, but it's, I guess the, like the, the lame answer is I don't know. And I guess we'll see. Yeah, no. And uh, Jayathi obviously has been a reporter at the Oregonian for years now, but just started on this beat a hot minute ago and then jumping into the Rose Quarter mm-hmm. uh, project, which has um, been going on forever. So I'm curious, um, do you have any sense when you're talking to, uh, again, the, the local partners yesterday, what did, did anyone respond and say like, wait a minute. I mean, because we just had this massive multi-billion dollar transportation package that voters just overwhelmingly turned down that would have funded light rail and all these projects. So now this commission is saying, find some money, uh, Portland area. I, that can't have gone over well. Yeah. You know, I did hear back from a few of those local partners. Some were not comfortable speaking on the record. And I think that's largely because this was just such a shock. It was kind of like, we still have to process. Um, but but largely the the response that I heard from those local partners was that this was not good news. You know, yeah. um, what one 
agency who was willing to who's comfortable giving a quote, um, you know, on behalf of Metro Council President Lynn Peterson said that, you know, Metro has dedicated about $10 million to this project, but the majority of the funding needs to come from state and federal coffers. And this is not this is not the way we expected or wanted things to go. Yeah, this is a very fascinating project for a thousand different reasons. But one of the things that back, you know, six months ago when I was still on the beat that animated my interest was, okay, you've got this administration that's coming in, the Biden administration, Um, one of the top deputies to Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg is Maurice Henderson, who's from, you know, not from Portland, but worked in Portland and worked for TriMet and worked for, um, God, I'm blanking. I think it was Lyft or Bird, one of those Mm -hmm. companies, and then was on the Transportation Commission. There's still a vacant seat, right, Mm -hmm. that they haven't filled. And he is a black man and he works in this government where they are now have this renewed interest from the federal level and helping fund, um, projects just like this but that's part of this transportation package that's been held up in in congress and now we don't know right it does it's not a big pot of money and there's you know a lot of projects like this one and i will say uh you know listening to the commissioners there were a few that brought up some concerns they had and and a few did appear to you know have some pause about the lack of community buy in but it seemed like the biggest sticking point was the cost uh, and that seems like that's where they took their action. You know, it was, it was like it seemed like they were not willing to have the state foot the entire bill. Hmm. Uh, and and the reason that one of them gave was, you know, like this is a, you know, this is a restorative justice project. But ODOT was not the only agency that contributed to the, you know, bisecting of this community. And hmm. so, other, you know, other parties should have a you know, be involved in trying to fix it was essentially what I heard. Yeah. And I mean, there's an element of truth there that the urban renewal um, projects and projects like the Memorial Coliseum, um, you know, that was not a ODOT project and that contributed to destruction and displacement of the black community in in lower Albina. So Mm -hmm. they're not wrong on that point. The other thing that was surprising, sorry to go back a little bit, but, um, you know, hearing TriMet's name thrown into the mix, and I know maybe you can speak to this a little bit, but that was surprising to me, even having been on here just a couple of weeks. But I had not heard TriMet's name involved with this at all. I'd not been aware that they had a seat at the table before. So that was a little bit surprising to me as well. Yeah, the, the only extent that TriMet, you know, they're obviously involved, but uh, they, um, you know, there's discussion of buses on shoulders through through mm-hmm. that congested corridor. But whether that and that means forking over cash to pay for a project that that's news to me as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, you know, given, like you said, you're only a couple of weeks in, um, what else stood out to you from, from this meeting, which, um, I gather was a long one. So there was a pretty long public comment section and, you know, there were some folks that spoke out in support. Uh, you know, there were some members of ODOT created committees who talked about, the benefits that they feel this project will bring. Uh, But there were also several members of local labor unions who kind of brought the perspective of local contractors and construction workers and talked about the importance of, you know, bringing local jobs to the area, uh, offering, you know, career-wide, like career-long opportunities. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I understand that can't be discounted too because that, you know, that is something that, 
is important to a lot of people involved with this project. The public comment felt to me pretty evenly split. There were quite a few people there who were, um, you know, speaking out saying we don't want to see this project delayed. That was actually, I would say, the biggest concern from supporters. Um, you know, everybody who spoke out in support kind of said we're in favor of this hybrid three option, but our biggest concern is seeing this project delayed anymore. And on the other hand, you know, folks who are opposing it are saying pump the brakes. We need to look at this more. We need to study the environmental impacts a lot more. Uh, you know, we need to make yeah. sure that this is actually, you know, that this is the right option. And if not, we need to figure out what the best option is. So, uh, yeah, there, uh, there was, there was a bit of both over there, you know, people saying like, this is good for the community. This is good for, you know, local job creation. And then others saying, like, we haven't studied the environmental impacts enough. There were others also who were concerned about the, you know, the lack of considerate, like safety considerations for bikers and pedestrians. Uh, so, yeah. yeah, those those things kind of stood out to me. I mentioned, you know, the Sunrise Movement and No More Freeways. They were vocal entities at that meeting as well. Yeah, and they that we should note that there's a lawsuit still pending. Correct. No more freeways yes. and other community groups, including mm -hmm. the neighborhood yeah. association. Yeah, um, I believe filed in April. Yeah. yeah. So, um, well, it's uh, it's something that we've been writing about for years, and and I, I predict you'll be writing about for a long time as well. And um, thanks for taking time to talk about the latest twists and turns. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to Beat Check with the Oregonian. I shared links to Jayathi and Shane's recent stories in the episode notes. Shane and I didn't discuss the controversy surrounding law enforcement officers being exempt from the city's vaccine mandate. The city and Multnomah County have suggested President Biden's vaccine order may address that issue, but that's not clear. Stay tuned to OregonLive.com for more reporting on that issue. If you like this show, leave us a five-star rating and review in Apple Podcasts. It really helps others find the program. And tell a friend. Help spread the word. The best way to support our journalism is through a subscription to Oregon Live. You can do that at OregonLive.com slash pod support. Until next time.